Well, let's take a Bible this morning and open it together to uh, the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be returning to our study in the life of the great man of God, David, 2 Samuel 20. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, how about borrowing a copy of the Bible we have for you right on the back of the seat in front of you? We're going to be on page 231, page 231 in our copy of the Bible or 2 Samuel 20 in your copy of the Bible. Can you guys hear me in the lobby? Okay, you all right? Okay, we love you out there. God bless you. All right. Now, uh, as many of you know, um, we here at McLean Bible Church have experienced some pretty incredible growth and some pretty incredible things over the last few years. Uh, But far more exciting to me than the numerical growth that we've experienced is the growth in impact that we've been able to start having here on Secular Washington and on people's lives here. And, you know, as I travel and as people hear about some of the things that are going on here, a question that I commonly get asked is, Lon, how do you explain it? I mean, how do you explain what God is doing here? And when I'm asked that question, I tell people, you know, I've really got to give you a two-part answer. Because it's not a simple answer. Part number one is that on a spiritual level, it's simply the undeserved blessing of God. Uh, I mean, 1 Samuel 2.30 says, Those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. And we've tried to honor the Lord here. We've tried to build a church community that, that, that honors Him. A, a church community where the authority is the Word of God. Where the, um, uh, where, where the motive is the glory of God. And so, but you know, lots of churches have tried to do that. We're not the only church in the world that's ever tried to do that. And, and so I come back to the very first point I made, which is, Really, what's happened here is just the sovereign, undeserved blessing of God. I don't have an explanation for it. But on the human level, the other part of the answer is, on the human level, the reason this has been able to happen is because we have been able to build a great team here. See, during my first year, first ten years here at McLean Bible Church as your leader, I really didn't understand, really didn't appreciate the value of team building. You know that yellow sign that they sometimes have out on the road with the big duck and then all the little ducks walking behind it? Well, that was really the model of church leadership that I had been trained in. I call it the mama duck model, where there's the mama duck and everybody else is just a little duckling in tow. And that was what I practiced here for the first 10 years that I was around, and it didn't work. As a matter of fact, I almost lost my job here in 1991, and I began realizing, you know what? The mama duck model is just not going to get us where we need to go, which is to rock this city for Jesus Christ. So, uh, in 1991, after those very unfortunate circumstances, we decided that we were going to make a U-turn. In 1991, we decided that we were going to change the way this church operated, and we were going to abandon the mama duck model, and we instead were going to embrace a team model for how we did things here. Now, friends, one of the wonderful things about God is that God's always anxious to let you make a U-turn. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and your life is going in the wrong direction, i got some great news for you. The great news is God's always willing to let you make a U-turn. As a matter of fact, He's standing with His arms wide open whenever you make that U-turn, anxious to hug you and love on you and just fold you back in. So if you need a U-turn in your life, I'm here to tell you, God loves to let people make those. Make it. But we made a U-turn organizationally back in 1991. And, and, and I, I recognize today, friends, I stand in awe of the incredible team of staff and volunteers that God has put together here. And I openly admit 
that what has happened here is not because of me, it's because of this wonderful team that God has built in this place. Now, I guess you figured out we're going to talk about team today. Did you all figure that out yet? All right, we are. Because what we're going to see in the passage in front of us is that David was a wonderful team builder. I want to show that to you. And then we want to talk about some principles about how you build a great team. So here we go, a little bit of background. Remember that David has been king for almost 30 years when his son Absalom rises up and overthrows him. Now, that was not a random act. As a matter of fact, it was part of the consequences that God had pronounced on David after David's wrongdoing with Bathsheba. Well, it was a little bumpy for a while, but finally David was able to defeat Absalom, to return to his throne. And when he got back on his throne, he reconsolidated his empire. He restored order to his empire. And you know, folks, we should mention David's empire was huge. David had the largest empire in the history of Israel before then or since then. In fact, let me show you a map that gives you an idea of the size of this empire that David put together. Now, if you look, you'll see that this is the Mediterranean Sea right here. Hold on. Here we go. Mediterranean Sea right here. Here's Egypt. And here are the countries today of Syria and Iraq. Here's modern-day Lebanon. And all of this shaded area is the area that David put together into his kingdom. Unbelievably huge. It's hard enough to compile a kingdom like that, but it's even harder to manage one effectively. And you say, how in the world did David, way back then, when they had no fax machines, no cell phones, no modern communication, how in the world do you manage something that large and that spread out? Well, we're going to see the secret right here in 2 Samuel 20. Look with me at verse 23. Verse 23, 2 Samuel 20. It says, now Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaiah was over the Carathites and the Pelophites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat was the recorder. Sheba was the secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were the high priests. And Ira was David's personal spiritual advisor, his personal priest. Now, this is a passage that when you read in the Bible, normally you just go right by. Yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. But this is not a whatever little paragraph. This is an important little paragraph because in it we find the secret of what made David such an effective administrator and ruler. In contrast to the many monarchs of his day who insisted on having total and autocratic control over everything and every piece of their entire kingdom, King David was much more of a 21st century leader in that David led by the team model not by the mama duck model. David was an incredible team builder. And right here in these verses, we get to see part of this team, the senior management level of that team that David had built. Let's talk about these guys. First, there was Joab. Joab was David's commanding general. He had been with David since the early days when the day, in the days when David was hiding out in the caves from Saul. Joab was with him. When David became king, Joab was his first general. Joab was the one who beat all those people to put that empire together, friends. I mean, David was a wonderful warrior, but the reason he had an empire of that size was not because of him. It was because of Joab in the army. And then Joab was the one who conquered Jerusalem so David could make it his capital. He was the one, oh, by the way, who defeated Absalom so that David could return to his kingdom after the insurrection. This is the team leader of the army. And then the Bible says there was Benaiah. Benaiah, the Bible says, was the leader of the Carathites and the Pelophites and the Termites. 
No, I'm just... I'm, I, some guys you go... Guys, sometimes you guys go on autopilot, and I know you're not even listening, so we just need to do that to kind of keep you awake. All right. Now, he was the leader of the Carathites and the Pelophites. You say, well, who are those guys? Well, as best we can tell, the Carathites and the Pelophites were David's personal bodyguard. It was very common in the ancient Near East for rulers to have an elite corps of troops that were their personal escort. And this is apparently what David, what these people were. We know, for example, that the Roman emperor had this. He had the Praetorian Guard. Paul even mentions them in Philippians chapter 1. They were the emperor's personal bodyguard. And that's what the Carathites and Pelophites were. They were the Praetorian Guard for King David. And their leader was a guy named Benaiah. Benaiah was a guy who also had been with David since the beginning. And the Bible tells us a little bit about this guy. Flip over a couple of chapters to chapter 23. Chapter 23, look at verse 20. 2 Samuel 23, 20. And look what it tells us about this guy, Benaiah. It says, verse 20, chapter 23, Benaiah was a valiant fighter who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But Nile went against him with just a club, and he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed the Egyptian with his own spear. Such were the exploits of this guy named Benaiah. He was held in greater honor than any of David's ever top 30 warriors. Now, I read this and I thought, my goodness, this guy, Benaiah, this guy's kind of like Rambo, Rocky, and Dirty Harry. You know what? All rolled into one. How'd you like to go against this guy in a fight? Not me. And he was the leader of David's personal bodyguard. Now, let's go back to chapter 20. The list goes on. Next comes Adoniram. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. As many of us know, in the ancient Near East, there were some great building projects. There was the Parthenon, the pyramids, the Sphinx, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, even the temple in Jerusalem and David's palace. Well, you know, back then they didn't build stuff like they do it today. Today we go out and get an architect, get a bunch of plans, go hire a builder, they build it. Uh Uh-uh, not back then. The way they did it back then is they used forced labor. And sometimes that forced labor came from slaves that they had captured in their military campaigns. But since Israel didn't have institutionalized slavery like that, actually in Israel what they did is they drafted, they conscripted members of the very country of Israel themselves, young men, to come and build these things. Now, when I was in college, the word conscription was a nasty word. Back in the 60s, draft was the word you didn't want to be anywhere near because they were going to send you off to Vietnam. You're going to get yourself killed. But back in Israel, Israeli times, ancient Near Eastern times, they drafted people, but they didn't draft them for the army. They drafted them for this labor pool that built these building projects in Israel. And Adoniram, the Bible says, was the five-star general of this labor pool. Then there was Jehoshaphat, the recorder, And Shiva, who was the secretary, were not exactly sure what these positions entailed, but very possibly these were the official record keepers of David's court. And perhaps these are the men that we have to thank for the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles being in the Bible today. They were very possibly the guy who kept these records and wrote these books. Next, we have Zadok and Abiathar, the two high priests. You say, wait a minute, Alon, I thought there was one high priest. Well, there was... Aaron, the brother of Moses, was one high priest, but he had two sons. <clears throat> Excuse me, and each of his sons had descendants. Zadok 
was the descendant of one of Aaron's sons, Eliezer. Abiathar was one of the descendants of another one of his sons, Ithamar. And what David did is David said, instead of you two guys fighting over who's going to be high priest, I'm going to make you partners. I'm going to make you co-high priests. You guys share the duties together. And that's what David did. And they were wonderful supporters of David all the way to the end of his life. Finally, we have Ira, who the Bible says was David's personal spiritual advisor. And you know, as I was studying this, I stopped long enough to say, here's, here's, a, here's a thought worth having. David was a leader who intentionally carved out a place for God on his team. Do you notice that here? 30% of David's team, more than 30% of David's team were there for no other reason than to bring God's advice and God's will into play when it came to the decisions of court. He had three godly advisors on his senior management team, and this was not accidental. It was not coincidental. David had taken deliberate and intentional steps to ensure that the voice of God was heard in his administration. You say, oh yeah, wonderful. And he goes off and does what he does with Bathsheba. Well, okay, fair enough. David had a couple of boo-boos. But it's also just as true that most of David's life and most of David's administration was lived under the guidance and the blessing of Almighty God. And the reason that was true is because David took steps to make sure that his team had God at the center. Now, you say, well, okay, Lon, this is it. David's senior management team, right? Yeah. But friends, David's team building didn't stop there. It went way beyond that. Don't turn there now, but if you turn later to 1 Chronicles 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27, you will find five chapters full of nothing but the names of the other team members and team leaders of David's team. You say, Lon, why in the world would the Bible waste five chapters just listing a bunch of team people's names and their responsibilities? Ah, because the Bible wants you and me to understand that God's method of leading is team leading. And this is the kind of leader David was. That's why the Bible put all that in there. It wants us to get the point that God's method is team. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask a really important question. And I know some of you guys have been going through withdrawal because we haven't done this for a while. But you remember how to do this. I know you do. It's like riding a bicycle. You don't forget how to do this. So let's take a deep breath. Ready? One, two, three. So what? So what? Say, Lon, so what? David was a team builder. Big whoop. Okay? Really? I don't care. Well, wait a minute now. Friends, if David was a man after God's own heart, and if David put together the greatest empire in the history of Israel, and if he did it all by being a team builder, then it seems to me as a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a need for us to stand back and say, you know what, if that's how David do it, then that's the model I need to follow. And friends, whether you're building a sales team, an athletic team, a ministry team, a military team, a family team, a government team, a corporate team, it doesn't matter. The principles for building a great team are the same. And I want to share them with you as we close. I've got five to give you. And here we go. Number one. Principle number one for building a great team is trust. Trust is probably the single most important ingredient in building teams. You know these military guys, these wonderful heroes who go out and jump on hand grenades and, and, and single-handedly charge pillboxes and throw themselves on barbed wire fences so the rest of the guys can run on top of them? You know those guys? 
it's really interesting that over the years, the military has interviewed those guys, at least, you know, the ones of them that survive, and has asked them, why did you do this? And you know what's interesting? None of them ever say, I did this for my country. You know what they all say? I did it for my comrades. I did it for my teammates. I did it for my brothers. I did it for my squad members. That's why I did it. And so the military learned a long time ago that the secret to building a powerful military team is to engender into every member of that team a deep and abiding sense of mutual trust. You're watching my back. I'm responsible and I'm watching your back. And we are linked at the hip. We are intertwined around a mutual trust relationship. That's what makes a great military team. And folks, in order to build a strong church team or any other kind of strong team, the same thing holds true. You cannot build a strong team on suspicion and doubt and mistrust. You build it on mutual trust. Now, if you look around, you will find most churches in America are not built on a foundation of trust. They are built on a foundation of mistrust. Check it out. The congregation, they suspect the elders. Or the leaders. The leading board, they suspect the staff. The staff, they suspect the people, and around you go again. And that's how most churches in America are built. Trust me, I've been watching them for 20 years. And friends, for the first 10 years of McLean Bible Church, that's how we were built. That's what led to a really nasty church split that we had here in 1991. And after that split, the elders and I got together and we decided to rebuild the fabric of McLean Bible Church around a new foundation, a foundation not of suspicion and mistrust, but a foundation of trust. That's why today we have an elder-led church. That's what McLean Bible Church is. And the reason that works is because the congregation trusts our elders. Our board of elders doesn't get involved in operations at all. They delegate all of that to the staff. The reason that works is because the board trusts me and the staff. And we as the staff, we try to give the ministry away to you people. And the reason that works is because we trust you guys. When we have to pick out two-year-old furniture, we send the two-year-old leaders and teachers out there to go pick it out. Why should we go do it? You say, well, don't you worry that they're going to misspend the money and they're not going to get the best. No, 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 we don't worry about that. We trust them. We trust them. And they're going to do a whole lot better job of picking out two-year-old furniture than I'm going to do. What do I know about two-year-old furniture? We trust them. Friends, this is one of the key elements of why McLean Bible Church has been able to go where it is because we have built a church based on trust. That's how you build a good team. You say, well, Lon, how do you do that? How do you build a team around trust? Well, I've got two quick suggestions. Number one, you make trustworthiness the most important element when you add new team members. You don't make skill the most important issue or education the most important issue. You make character the most important issue. When you consider a new team member, you look first to see does the person have the kind of character that we can trust them, that we can build them into this trust relationship. And when we put together a job profile, I'll tell you, at the top of the job profile, when we're listing desired qualities, we don't list their skills, we don't list their abilities, we don't list their experience, we don't list their training, we list their character. And the second way you build trust in an organization is not only do you make it part of who you add in new, but secondly, you constantly reinforce this value team-wide, whether it's a family team, a sales team, a military team, a ministry team, a corporate team. The constant refrain from the leader's mouth has got to be, hey folks, the super glue that holds this team together is trust. Honest mistakes 
hey, we can handle all kinds of honest mistakes, but you violate trust and you'll forfeit your role on this team. Trust is what it's all about. And my staff will tell you that I constantly repeat, it's like my mantra around here, gang, our only qualification for ministry here is our personal credibility. If we lose our personal credibility, it doesn't matter how many degrees you got. It doesn't matter how talented you may be in speaking or whatever. You lose your ministry because if people can't trust you, then you can't build teams. How you build a great team? Principle number one, jealously build and jealously guard the issue of trust. Number two, shared values. You know, I looked up team in the dictionary. Here's what it said. It said a team is a group of people working together towards a common goal. Now, friends, if you have no common goal, how in the world can you build a team? It's pretty hard to me since that's part of the definition. And that's why it's so important for senior leadership to define the goals, define the target for their team. That's their most important job as senior leadership. Husband and wives, man, they need to be defining the goals for their family team. Corporate execs need to be defining the goals for their corporate teams. Military leaders need to be defining the goals for their military teams. Pastors need to be defining the goals for their church team. I met a guy on a flight back from San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, a guy in the corporate world, and he said to me, we got to talking, and he said, you know what? He said, I love to go into my office and tell people that I go to a church that has a mission statement, one sentence, and has written down core values. He said, the people in my office can't believe there's a church anywhere like that because they're not used to seeing churches like that. Well, I'm here to tell you, friends, that you know we have this. You know I speak on this topic two or three times every year. You say, yes, Lon, we know. Well, all right. I know you know. But it's because the only way we can build a great team is to keep reinforcing shared values, keep reminding everybody what the target is, because you can't build a good team without a good target. Number three, communication. Effective communication. Now, I learned this lesson from my mentor here, Jimmy Mitchell, and many of you know Jimmy, and he taught me that effective team building takes effective communication and that good, effective communication is hard work. It's hard work. Not too long ago, I sat down and looked at my schedule and I said, you know what would really be interesting would be to, to, to kind of take my schedule and see what I spend the most amount of time doing. You know, number one, number two, number three. Well, number one, I spend the most amount of time, might not surprise you, working on messages. But you know what number two was? You won't believe it. Number two, I spend the second most amount of my time communicating, just talking with people, just trying to make sure that we've got our lines of communication well understood and straight. I'm on the phone or in person with the chairman of our board of elders two, three, four times every single week, sometimes every day. I'm in constant contact with my senior leadership team here. I talk to one of them at least once every single day. And it is hard work. Our phone bills, our cell phone bills here at McLean Bible Church are huge. But that's okay. Because, friends, if you want a good team, you've got to have good communication. You can't build a great team when team members are getting surprised. And the way to keep people from getting surprised is communicate. Principle number four is humble leadership. Humble leadership. Now, this is another one of those essential team building blocks. For a team to work well, I'll tell you why. For a team to work well, my friends, the leaders have got to be willing to do some things. Number one, a team leader's got to be willing to let go of autocratic control. 
Number two, a team leader has got to be willing to let other team members share the spotlight. Can't have it all on himself or herself. Number three, the team leader has got to be willing to give other people credit for success, not take it all themselves. And number four, to build a good team, the team leader has got to be willing to, to, to rejoice in the success of other team members, even if that other team member's success eclipses the success of the leader. And that's what it takes to be the leader and build a great team. And would you notice, all of this demands one basic character quality, and that's humility. It is impossible to build a good team with arrogant leadership. You can't do it. You know, the greatest naval hero in the history of Great Britain and the greatest admiral they ever had was a fellow named Nelson, Lord Horatio Nelson. And, and his victory in 1805 at the Battle of Trafalgar over Napoleon's Navy was what catapulted the British Navy into being the ruler of the seas for the next 100 years. He took a fledgling English Navy and built it into one of the greatest military teams in history. Now, how did he do that? Well, his biographer said that the secret was his humble leadership. Listen, and I quote, One of Nelson's greatest characteristics as a commander, his biographer says, was his willingness to give full credit to his officers and his men, not to take it for himself. End of quote. When he was knighted in 1798, he said to the queen that was knighting him, he said, it was not I. I have simply had the privilege of serving with a valiant band of brothers. And in 1801, when the city of London wanted to give him a parade after the Battle of Copenhagen, which he won, he refused to show up at the parade. And here's what he said. And I quote, he said, till the city of London recognizes the merits of my brave companions, never can I, their commander, receive any attention. End of quote. You want to know why this man was able to build the greatest naval team in history, perhaps? I'll tell you why. You don't have to look any farther than his humble leadership. That's what it takes to build teams. Principle number five and last is empowerment. Empowerment. Now, what exactly is empowerment? Well, I'd like to let Sparky Anderson define it for us. Sparky Anderson, as you know, just elected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame this week, coach of the Cincinnati Reds and the Detroit Tigers. And uh, he, by the way, is the only man to ever coach a team to the World Series in both leagues and win it. He's the man who in 1976 led the Cincinnati Reds to be the only team in Major League history to win every game in the playoffs and every game in the World Series, never lose a single game. And he was asked this past week what the secret to his success was. Here's what he said, and I quote. He said, there are two kinds of managers. The first kind gets bad players, has bad years, and gets fired a lot. <laughs> I love that. The second kind, he says, finds great players gets out of their way and gets to stay around for a long time. Now, there's your definition of empowerment, friends. Empowerment is simply finding great talent, defining the target, and then getting out the way and letting these people go do what they're gifted and talented to do. And when it comes to running the engine of team, empowerment is the gasoline. You say, but Lon, how could it be all that important if you saved it till the very end and made it last? Well, I'll tell you why I saved it to last. It's not because it's not the most important. It's because you never get to empowerment unless you do the other four things we talked about. Think about it now. You can't empower somebody you don't trust. Think about it now. You can't empower somebody pursuing different values than you. 
Think about it now. You can't empower somebody who is the victim of poor communication. And think about it. You can't empower somebody if you yourself are arrogant and insist on getting all the credit and all the spotlight and having all the control. It's only when you do the other four things well that you even get to empowerment. But when we can create a team environment where trustworthy people all shooting at the same target receive good communication and experience humble servant leadership that empowers them, man, I'll tell you something, that's when stuff happens. And if you want to build a great team in your family, in your office, in the military, on the athletic field, wherever, in the church, these are the principles that lead to doing it. Now, I don't know, anybody here love McDonald's? No? I love McDonald's, man. I mean, McDonald's is the breakfast of champions is kind of how I see it. I love that place. And I know the food is bad for you. I know that. But that's what makes it taste so good. And, and I want to take a little poll here, just a little raise your hand poll about your favorite McDonald's sandwich. Okay, so ready? Here we go. How many of you, your favorite sandwich is the filet of fish? Raise your hand. Yeah, that never wins. Okay, but we throw it in there. Okay, how many of you, your favorite sandwich is the quarter pounder with cheese? Okay. How about the Egg McMuffin? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's good. How about the Big Mac? All right. That wins one in every service so far. That's my favorite. I love a Big Mac. Now, would it surprise you to know that every single one of these sandwiches that I just named was not created by Ray Kroc? Nor were any of these sandwiches created by McDonald's management. Would that surprise you? Every single one of these sandwiches and some others were all created by employees empowered employees who got a great idea for a sandwich and said, hey, I think this will work. And so just think about it now. Without empowerment, there would be no Big Mac today. And that would be a national tragedy the way I see it. No Big Mac in America? Come on now. But it it was an empowered employee that did it. Friends, how do you build a great team? Let me tell you. Number one, you put together a team around trust. Number two, you have shared values. Everybody's shooting at the same target. Number three, there is effective communication up and down the organization. Number four, there's humble leadership that's not afraid to share the credit and the spotlight. And number five, all of that means you can empower people, as Sparky said, to get out of their way and let talented people go do their job. This is how you build teams. And no matter where you are in your life, I can promise you there's somebody somewhere looking to you to build a team. Your kids are looking for you to build a team in that home. The people around you in the office are looking for you to be a team builder in that office. If you're on an athletic team, the coach of a team, those team members are looking at you to build a team. Friends, we get our opportunities to do this. And when we do as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be the best at it there is because we understand the biblical principles of how to do it. So may God take this and help you become a better team builder like David was. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for an opportunity to worship you by studying the word of God today. Thanks for taking these wonderful principles and teaching them to us. Father, make us better team builders wherever we go, in our families, in our corporate world, in our in our extracurricular world, here at at this church or wherever we go, God. May people look at us and be able to say, now there's a person who humbly knows how to build team and gives the credit to God. So change our lives because we were here. Change the way we relate to people and the way we relate 
to the environments that we're in because we were here and learned from you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.